So Jesus, we ask that you please uh, teach us from your word. Um, help us to know how we can live out of it. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, hello to all of you online uh, and our middle schoolers, high schoolers in the 11 o'clock service, uh, as well as all of you who made it here through the snow. Those of you who are here are probably from the Midwest and this didn't bother you, right? Oh. But welcome all of you here. Uh, I, got some, I got a piece of junk mail uh, last week that was clearly a scam, but it had an interesting strategy that did not work uh, on me. So this is what it said. It said, hello, Scott. I'll cut to the chase. I know about the secret you're keeping from your wife. Okay, I'm not keeping any secrets from my wife, except for maybe that the commercials that Apple makes during the holidays makes me cry a little bit. But other than that, I'm not, no secrets, right? And the letter went on, furthermore, I have evidence of what you're hiding. I won't go into specifics, but you know what I'm talking about. No, I don't. And then went on to say that if I give this person $2,000, they won't tell anybody. So I show the letter to my wife, and my ever-practical wife said, well, I'm glad you're not keeping secrets from me, but just for the record, if you ever do, I'll be more irritated if you gave someone $2,000 than about the secret. I love that, my ever practical wife. And I read this and I thought, does this tactic actually work? And I thought, I bet sometimes it does. Because it taps into a universal human emotion, guilt and shame. In fact, when I read the first line, I had this split second of panic, like, oh, and then I realized, wait, I don't have a secret, I'm good. <laughs> it's okay, right? But we all have this sense, right? We all have kind of this sense that I've done something wrong, I have something to hide. If people found out, then they wouldn't accept me. And there's truth in it, right? There's truth in it. I, I may not be keeping secrets from my wife, but I am certainly a sinful person. I'm loving, yet capable of intense anger and even hatred at times. I'm committed to purity, but still have to battle thoughts that I don't want. I'm giving, but I can also be selfish quite a bit of the time. I'm a saint with an incredible capacity for sin. And that word sin has some weird connotations. Let me define it. It you, originally was an archery term that meant, meant to fail to hit the bullseye, to not hit the mark. And by that definition, all of us sin. We all miss the mark in some way or another, right? We have bad habits that we can't break. We have selfish thoughts. We, 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 ha we have sexual thoughts where we compare our spouse unfavorably to other people. We have an indifference to people in poverty, indifference to other people's problems, neglecting family, friends to get ahead in school or career. We all got something. And as a result, we carry this shame and this guilt, some level of it inside of us. Now, our culture wants to say the problem here is religion. It's religion that's making you feel guilty, or it's the society that's making you feel guilty, okay? That's the problem. Okay, that dog don't hunt. That dog don't hunt, because here's the thing. You cannot make someone feel guilty of something they didn't do. You could try all you wanted to make me feel guilty of first-degree murder, and it wouldn't work because I haven't done it, right? And it was so shame and guilt's not a religious deal. It's a human deal, that we all have. In fact, there are now online confession sites where you can call an anonymous number and confess your guilt secretly, for a fee, of course, right? <laughs> but, but, that, but, it, but, but that's how much it's with us. And the way out of that shame, the way out of that kind of sense of guilt, the way out of it is called repentance. And some of you might right now might be going, oh, man, 
I don't want to hear about it. I drove through the snow for this, right? right well, but repentance, because I know repentance sounds like one of those eat your broccoli kinds of topics, right? But actually repentance has some amazing benefits to it. For starters, it frees us from shame and helps us feel loved just as we are, not as we should be. It gives us hope that we can change, that we're not forever defined by our bad choices, and we don't have to settle for being permanently angry or lustful or unkind or whatever it is. Repentance fixes relationships because when we admit that we've done something wrong and forgive, then reconciliation is possible. And repentance helps us feel closer to God because when we go to him, he meets us. It all comes down to this. We can't make anything right unless we have first admit where we've been wrong. We can't make ourselves, our relationships, our culture right until we first admit where we've been wrong. I recently heard a therapist uh, talking about how many of us are so unaware of our flaws. And she said it's like the narcissist who keeps talking about himself, talking about himself, talking about himself, and finally says to the other person, oh my goodness, all I've done is talk about myself. Enough of that. What about you? What do you think of me? Right? And so many of us are that blind to what, we're, like, what, what we carry. We can't make anything right until we acknowledge where we've been wrong. And when we do that, Jesus sets us free from shame. And there are two kinds of shame. There's, there's, there's truthful shame, or I would call it guilt, that tells us the truth about something we've actually done that's not good. But then there's lying toxic shame. That lying toxic shame comes from, from culture or from parents or from peers, and it says we're not smart enough or athletic enough or good-looking enough or whatever it is, right? And, and true guilt says I've done something wrong. Toxic shame says I am wrong. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. I'm, I'm no good. That, God never says that. And toxic shame wrecks us. It keeps us from trying new things because we're afraid to fail and because then we'll be humiliated. It can cause all kinds of stress because one of the ways we deal with shame is try to, be, try to achieve at school or at, at work to kind of cover over our shame, make us feel acceptable because we've done something good and successful. It wrecks relationships because we're afraid to be truly open, which is key to any kind of closeness because we're afraid they're going to reject us. Shame sucks, basically. And the antidote to shame is to experience God's unconditional love that loves us just as we are and not as we should be. And then gives us the power to live differently, to live new lives. And the door through which we walk to experience God's love is called repentance. And in the prayer that Rich just read, Daniel prays a prayer of repentance. And there are five steps that he kind of goes through in his repentance. And the first step to repentance is that we go to God in hope. The passage starts out, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word, the Lord, of, the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. And as we've talked about, what he's referring to is the fact that the Jews were conquered by the Babylonians and taken into exile for 70 years. So their situation is dire. But look at what comes next. So I turned to the Lord God, prayed to my God, and confessed. And the literal Hebrew there is more personal. It means, I turn my face to God. And he uses the word Yahweh, the Hebrew word Yahweh for God, the most intimate, personal name of God. It's a personal relationship that he has. When we look at ourselves, the same old mistakes over and over, or when we look at our past and think, man, I really blew it with that friend, or I really blew it in that relationship, or man, I really screwed up as a parent, or whatever it is, turn to God because he is our hope. And here's why he is our hope. Daniel goes on and he says, I prayed to the Lord my God who keeps his covenant of love. 
See, we can go to God even in the middle of our shame because he is loving. He stands ready to forgive. We do not go to an angry, harsh father. We go to a good, good father with open arms. Another piece of junk mail that I get sometimes, and you probably get it too, is from credit card companies, right? And it will often say, congratulations, Scott, you've been pre-approved. How nice, right? Like my own mother doesn't pre-approve me, but the credit card company does, right? We can go to God with hope because we've been pre-approved. You've been pre-approved. In another kind of church, you'd say amen right now because that's good news, right? Now, some people might ask, well, if I've been pre-approved, why do I even have to go through the whole repentance thing anyway? Why do I have to like, talk about it, go to God with it? Well, because for starters, God's not going to force on you something that you don't want, so you kind of have to ask for it. But more importantly, because the ultimate point of repentance is closeness with God, so we've got to talk to him. The other thing people will sometimes say to me is, well, why should I repent of something I know? I'm just going to keep doing it over and over again. So maybe, so maybe I'll just save it all up and repent when I'm done sinning. Well, that's like saying when my car is broken, I won't fix it because it'll just break down again. So I'll let it just, you know, do all the breaking down it's going to do, and then I'll fix it. Well, that's dumb, right? We're, 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 we're going to break down. <laughs> Sorry. We're going to break. That just was an amusing moment for that to happen. <laughs> to me, anyway, not to you. But um, we're going to break down over and over and over again, but God will restore us over and over and over again. There is no end to God's love. There is no end to God's forgiveness. So go to God in hope. Second step, admit the raw, unvarnished truth about me. Right? This was just Daniel does here. Daniel doesn't say, oh, Lord, we may have occasionally had some minor errors of judgment that aren't really our fault. So grant, so help us to, to keep our self-respect, and we ask this according to the unlimited tolerance that we have a right to expect from you. Right? That's not how he prays, right? He says, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. Raw, unvarnished truth. And it's not just that we fail to meet God's standards. We don't meet our own standards. Like maybe it's chronic procrastination, whether it's writing a paper for school or a hard conversation you have to have and you just keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off and you think, man, I don't want to be this person, right? Maybe it's an excess of anger that causes you to lash out at people you love and you think, man, I do not want to be this way. Maybe it's a habit you can't break around alcohol or pornography or shopping or, or whatever. And if right now you're sort of sitting there comfortably numb thinking, yeah, I, I can't really think of anything I might need to repent of, try this, ask your spouse. <laughs> that should clear it right up, right? Or a good friend, that could, that could do it too. Or better yet, pray this prayer, Jesus, show me my sin. Jesus, show me my sin. And again, the point is not to make us feel terrible and awful and worth, worthless, it's to experience God's amazing grace and love. I recently read something from a guy who was leading a pastor's retreat, and they talked about sharing each other's burdens so they could experience God's love and grace. So the leader invited them to kind of share some of their problems, but they were like so superficial, right? Asking prayers for things like a new copier and stuff like that. And the guy said, finally said, you guys are going to be pastors. You're pastors. You want your congregations to open up and share, but you're not willing to open up your hurts and your heart. So one guy finally got up and talked about how he felt like a failure in ministry, and that made him mad at everyone, mad at his church, mad at his wife, mad at God. Another talked about an addiction that he had. One confessed his judgmental attitude toward another pastor in the room, and, and they forgave each other. And pretty soon everyone was sharing the real stuff. Some of them were crying. Others just had this deep sense of joy. 
Now, right now, some of you might be thinking, that sounds terrible, right? Like, dear God, don't ever let that happen to me, right? And because and, all that emotion, right? Ew, right? Too sloppy. And I get that, and I, I have a little bit of that in me as well. But let me challenge all of us. This east side thing we do, where we can't get honest, have to keep up, it's pathological. Have to keep up appearances. It's, it's a sickness, guys. It's pathological. And it blocks us from experiencing God's love, peace, and joy. So at least let's do God a favor. If you aren't willing to get gut level honest with God and with at least one other trusted friend, do not complain that God doesn't seem real to you. Maybe God doesn't seem real to you because you won't get real with him. And I put myself in there as well. Go to God in hope. Admit the raw, unvarnished truth about you. Third, repent of your goodness. Now that might seem a little weird to you. Right, like repent of my sin, sure, 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 but goodness? Well, Daniel says this, we do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Every religion repents of sin. Only followers of Jesus repent of our goodness. All the ways we try to offset our bad deeds with some good deeds, all the ways we try to save ourselves and make ourselves acceptable with all the things that good things we do, all the virtue signaling that we do over and over and over. But that's not what forgives us. It's not what we do that forgives us. It's what Jesus did on the cross that forgives us, which brings me to the next step, and that is trust the completed work of the cross. Daniel says, the Lord your God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. In other words, you cannot be too sinful for God to accept you. And some of you might be going, oh, I can, trust me. No, you just try. Just try. It's not possible. It's not possible. He wants to forgive, accept, restore, renew, redeem, so badly so that he went to the cross himself in the person of Jesus so that you would know that your sin has been dealt with. And we see this in Daniel's prayer. He says, while I was confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Gabriel, that's an angel, came to me and said, 77s are decreed for your people to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Then the anointed one will be put to death. And tons of different ideas, 77s, what does that mean, right? And 70, very symbolic, because 70 years was the uh, length of the exile in Babylon. I think the best ex explanation is it's 70 weeks of seven years. Not just 70 years of exile, but seven times 70, which is 490 years. Approximately, by the way, how long it would be from Daniel's time to Jesus' death on the cross which this text points to clearly when it talks about the anointed one, the Hebrew word for that is Messiah, who is put to death to atone for sin. 500 years before Jesus, Daniel gets a, gets a glimpse of Jesus and he understands that we are forgiven not based on the good stuff that we do, but on the completed work of the cross that he has done. And this is hard. I know this is hard for we modern people to get. It's like, why does God have to punish sin? And that just seems so primitive. And why can't he just, you know, forgive and all of that? Well, when someone hurts you, gossips about you, cheats in a relationship, lies to you, don't you sort of want some kind of account to be taken of that? Right? Like if God were just to look at all the pain that sin causes and, and just say, yeah, I forgive you. Let's just call it good. Right? That is not a God of love. Right? That is a God of shocking indifference to pain and suffering. Researcher Brene Brown has this great thing. She says, in order for forgiveness to happen, something needs to die. Pride, hanging on to a grudge. In order for forgiveness to happen, something needs to die. She says, the problem with our culture is we make it all too easy, right? Love is just this bunnies and fluffy stuff, right? And she says, the problem with the way we do forgiveness is there's not enough blood on the floor. 
to make it seem like it's real. But with Jesus, there's plenty of blood on the floor and it's his. And this is where Christianity is so psychologically brilliant. Jesus pays the price deep down. We all know it's got to be paid so that justice is served, but mercy wins. Well, how does one man's death forgive my sin? That's a whole other sermon. And part of it is just a mystery of God. But one, re- one of the reasons is the one thing you have to do is admit that you need it, which is a start, Right? And then the other thing is he's making it crystal clear. In Jesus, there's freedom from shame. God says, you are forgiven. I wrote it in red so you would get the point. And when you get that, not just in your head, but in your heart as a living experience, well, it changes everything. And repentance is not eat your broccoli. It's actually good news. And it leads to one other thing. And that is you begin to live differently. Because the point of repentance is that over time, we change. We stop doing unhealthy things and start doing good things. Last week, one of you told me a story about a man who went to a bar and asked for three beers. And then he alternately sipped one and then the other and then the third till they were all gone. And the waiter asked him, why do you do it that way? And the man said, well, I have two brothers, one in Australia and one in Ireland. And we made a vow that every Sunday night, we would get together and drink still. So right now, my brothers, one in Australia, one in Ireland, right, they have three beers too. And we're drinking them all together as though all three of us were in the same place, right? And the bartender thought, oh, what a great tradition. Every week he would bring this guy three beers. But then one week, the guy only ordered two beers. And the bartender said, oh man, I know your tradition. I'm so sorry that you lost your brother. And the man said, oh, my brothers are fine. I just quit drinking. This side got it before this side. And the center, I'm not sure you ever... I don't know what it says about y'all, but you got that so quickly, all right? That is not repentance. The point of repentance is that we start to live differently, right? But the question is, what empowers us to do that? What imp- and is, is it guilt, duty, obligation, burden, some preacher shaking his, his, his finger at you? No, no, no. What, when, what leads to repentance, what really helps us le- live differently, is when we experience God's unconditional love for us. And the Holy Spirit then, in gratitude, in response to that love, we become more loving. So those are some steps to forgiveness or for repentance. If you want to take out your cell phone, take a picture of that so you can kind of remind yourself of those points uh, in the week to come, feel free to do that. And ask yourself, where might you need to get gut level honest with God and maybe one trusted friend to experience God's unlimited love for you? And when you experience that love, you just start being more loving, which makes you live different. When I got divorced from my first wife, I'd been a Christian for a while, but after the divorce, I just kind of moved a little bit away from God. I mean, I was still going to church, but not as often, and just kind of wasn't really focused on. What I was focused on was I was doing PhD work, and I worked really hard to excel, have great success, you know, anything to avoid facing all the things I'd done to contribute to that divorce and cover over my failure and shame with a whole lot of academic success. Aren't I acceptable now? I was certainly not repenting. Well, about two years into this, a friend of mine who was a youth pastor uh, called me and he said that he wanted me to speak at his high school retreat. And I laughed. And he said, no, really. I was waist deep in shame over my marriage, hardly going to, failed marriage, hardly going to church at all. Plus, I am decidedly uncool, right? And it always seemed to me that if you want to really relate to high school students, you need to be super cool and say things like, hey, bro, that party was so lit, right? And right now, you middle schoolers, high schoolers at the 11 o'clock service, feel free to mock me for that. I know it's cringeworthy. So just feel free, okay? 
You guys in the middle schoolers, high schoolers, feel free to do it, right? Well, so I told my friend all of this, and he said, uh-huh. And I said, no, really, I, I can't do it. Bad choice. And he said, whatever. I'm going to send the plane ticket tomorrow. Time to get back on the horse, Scott. And it was this mixture of confrontation and grace. And I heard God saying, come to me. Admit your sin. I want to forgive and make you new. So I did the retreat. Felt like I was so nervous, I felt like I was going to throw up the whole time, but I did it. And it was a turning point. I had amazing conversations with students where they opened their life to me and vice versa. And I discovered they didn't really want someone who could say, hey, bro. They just wanted someone to have an authentic conversation with. And for the first time in two years, I felt God's love. Like he was right beside me saying, Scott, I have not given up on you. There's still cool things I want to do with you. Well, after that retreat, I started getting gut-level honest with God and gut-level honest with some of my friends about the selfish things I'd done to hurt my first wife. And I felt God's love kind of making me new, which helped me live differently. I started to let people at Stanford know I was a Christian, stopped hiding it. Started leading a Bible study of college guys. A whole lot of stuff started to change. I lived in a different way. And God took away some of my shame, and I became just a little more the person that he created me to be. God's grace led me to repent. And on the other side of repentance, I found still more grace. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that I do. O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death. I am so glad that verse is in the Bible. You ever feel that way? Because I do. Thing I don't want to do, I do, and vice versa. But then listen to what comes next. There is now only a little bit of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> what? It's a translation thing. You just wouldn't understand it, right? No, this is the verse, right? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I looked up the Greek there for the word no, and the word no in Greek means no. <laughs> None, right? So read it out loud with me together, ready? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hmm. Yeah, that was all right in a Presbyterian sort of a way. You know, contained, controlled, decent, and in order. But I think, <laughs> I think the good news is gooder than that. <clears throat> so let's read it again as though it were the most amazing news ever, because it is. Read it like a Pentecostal preacher. Read it as though the Seahawks just won the Super Bowl, or better yet, that like a real miracle has occurred and the Mariners won the World Series, okay? <laughs> Ready? Everyone emphasize the word no. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen, right? None. Zero. Nada, zilch, because of Jesus, your sins are forgiven, your shame is erased, God has buried it on the ocean floor. You are righteous, you are holy, you are one of his redeemed, you get a brand new start, he's given you a new heart, and he has set you apart to be with him. Your past is behind you, the accuser can't find you, no lie can define you, no shame can bind you, because Jesus refines you, so let me remind you that you are free. So come to him, he's all you need. And as we go to prayer, I'd invite you just to close your eyes. And many of you have known Jesus a long time, 
And during communion, maybe just offer him whatever it is you feel shame over. Repent, ask forgiveness, and then hear the words, the body and blood of Christ given for you. Have some bread. You're forgiven. And some of you may never have officially asked Jesus into your life, but maybe today's the day. And you don't have to have every question answered. You don't have to have it figured out. Just invite Jesus into the process of figuring it out. So if you've never asked Jesus to be a part of your life officially, I'm going to pray. And if you want to start a relationship with Jesus today, just repeat after me, either in your mind or whisper the words or out loud. Just repeat after me, Jesus, I don't know what it all means to follow you, but I want to try. So whatever it means, Jesus, come into my life. Be my forgiver. Be my leader. And help me follow you. And if you prayed that prayer, now you're a Christian. And you just need to do one other thing. Before you leave here today, tell somebody to make it real, to make it a commitment. Before you leave, tell a pastor or one of the people assisting in worship or a prayer minister. If you're online, send us an email so that we can pray for you, but also follow up with you and help you move forward. So Jesus, thank you that as we come to the table, we know that we come, hopefully, because you are a good, good father whose arms are wide open. And Jesus, thank you that as we come here, we can hear your words that we are forgiven, we are made new, we are set free in you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.